Hello, everyone. Um, good to have you on the call. Let's see. D'Artagnan, you want to come back? Yep, I'm coming back here. Okay, good. Let's see here. Stop share. There we go. Hey. All right. Welcome. Welcome. My gosh, you have a you have quite a fan club here, buddy. Look at this. We're already at 25 participants at, at high noon. So that's excellent. Well, um, there's nothing else to do in Iowa at this time. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, let's just get started. Uh, D'Artagnan Brown is an Iowa native whose career as a journalist, musician, and interdisciplinary teaching artist has taken on incredible personal journeys. He's a vocalist, multi-instrumentalist, and a songwriter. By the way, uh, D'Artagnan will be one of our uh, 11 speakers coming up in September for the Iowa Writers, uh, Okoboji Writers Retreat in the topic of songwriting. So I'm excited about that and so many other things. But D'Artagnan and I <laughs> reconnected, had lunch the other day and started talking about all the things he's been doing. And, and uh, I talked to him about starting a Substack column and holy moly, are you on a roll with this new column? D'Artagnan, welcome to our Monday Zoom potluck. Let's, let's start out talking about the, pot, the, the column. That's your, that's your newest venture. So what surprised you about it so far? <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Hi, everybody. I've, there's friends here. Wow. I really first have to acknowledge the connections that I'm just seeing here in the very first seconds of doing this. And it's gratifying beyond under. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. And there's a lot of new people who I don't know yet. But uh, if you're here, that means we have the potential to do that. And I'm really excited about that for sure. For sure. Uh, Julie. Yeah. When she. <laughs> Let's see, she first called me um, about doing this. Um, you know, as many as you know, I'm a musician and I have been for doing that for a long time. And importantly, I was uh, teaching in Northern California from say 1990, I got out there in 87, but 1990 until about 2014. Uh, and as a teaching uh, computer computer using educator in Northern California, I kind of was at the front row of a lot of uh, changes. I was there pre-internet. I was there when the first internet rolled through. I first saw my first browser uh, with a, on the computer of a high school kid at San Rafael High in wow. 1993. And so as the computer generation or as this wave has rolled through, all of us have been affected. Uh, artists, creators, writers have been affected mightily, which is kind of why we're here. Uh, Substack actually being a, a piece of this uh, social media, I guess we would call it, but it is constructed in a way it actually shows respect for the artists and for the creators who are here. Mm -hmm. When, yeah, so that's kind of how I got here. When Julie asked me about writing, I mean, I'm always excited to do it. 
But as a digital creator, I felt almost like very, why try? Because I'm going to put something out there and then somebody's just going to exploit it and without my permission. And I don't know how many of you have experienced that in any of your disciplines, theater, writing, visual, uh, photography, movies, whatever. But it became kind of a cause for me. And I'm just glad now that we can do this. We can share our work together. We can share our insights together. We can share our love of humanity together. I'm hoping. And really build something that is soul fulfilling <laughs> rather than the opposite. That is why I'm here. That's why I'm here in Iowa, actually, too. But certainly, thank you, Julie. Thank you. Thank you for asking me to be a part of this. Um, no, my pleasure, truly. Um, I guess I didn't realize how long you'd been back. Of course, we just came back. Um, you actually came back to Des Moines before I did. Uh, I'd, I'd been gone for over 20 years. So yeah. that's one of the reasons why we didn't re reconnect sooner. But what brought you back to Des Moines? Well, yeah, I was I left in 1987, October, uh, because another North High friend of mine, Dennis Bell back then, but now Tija Bell, a, an amazing, in fact, one of my League of Extraordinary Islands. One of the things I'll be featuring as the months go on is what I'm calling the League of Extraordinary Islands. And I'll get into that later, but as an amazing light for me, he got me to California in 1987. Uh, I was there until 2014. Um, I hadn't thought of becoming a teacher, but as a computer savvy musician, media person from Iowa, again, us Iowa kids were ed educated very well from 19, well, I came in in 49, but I'm the class of uh, 67 North High School Class of 75 to we were taught very darn well. We were taught not to settle for second best. We were taught not to come in here with words misspelled. We were taught not to, to not fail to do the complete job. And the community agreed that that's what should happen. So we had just all of our nice big stone school buildings that we have here in Iowa and Des Moines, certainly. We agreed on a curriculum that what we should all be learning. They agreed that the teachers should be respected. And they agreed, it seemed, that what we all should be learning generally is a curriculum. What it takes to make it in the world, so to speak. And we did that, and it was beautiful. My League of Extraordinary Iowans, when you meet them, those are other Iowa guys. We came up all in that same era, and no matter where we went in the world, we were respected because we knew how to work, and we didn't take any crap. Give me an example of one of the extraordinary Iowans you're going to be writing about. Uh, well, I guess I should give first credit to the one who got me to California, uh, class of 68 North High, Dennis Bell. Uh, those of you early rock fans and early youth music fans, 
uh, at the place or the click or the nowhere. Um, he had a band called The Second Half. And the second half was a Beatles influence. You were either influenced by the Beatles or you were influenced by the Stones or you were either influenced by, right? Right? Well, Dennis also liked martial arts. And as did I back then, 1963, we were all buying a, a Black Belt magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, uh, what was it? Uh, the uh, the uh, Asian karate star, Bruce Lee. Well, Tija, Dennis, took it a little farther than most of us. He has dedicated his life to the ethic of what was presented there. That is being fit, but also being spiritually, metaphysically connected. Hmm. So Dennis is now literally a Zen Buddhist priest in Northern California. He does weekly retreats and at a place called the at Spirit Rock uh, Meditation Center. How did he influence you, D'Artagnan? But in 1965, well, 66, 67, 68, Dennis and I would go into the North High Band room during lunch, grab our guitars, and work on Beatles songs hmm. and folk songs, you know, New Christie Minstrels, whatever. We were totally into that kind of music. Also because we'd also sung together in a thing called the YMCA Boys Chorus in Bellwinders. But that's another chapter. We'll get there. But Dennis and I would usually regularly get kicked out of the band room by Carl Killinger, our band director, because he didn't like the Beatles. He thought hmm. Carl King was the be-all, end-all of music. Carl King or Carol King? <laughs> Carl. <laughs> Carl, okay. Yeah, many of you know Fort Dodge. Oh, my goodness, the March King. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, he was, that was, that was it. So, so for, he, the, oh, for those who haven't had the chance to catch up with your column, which I highly recommend you do because it's absolutely fascinating, but I was intrigued by your experience of what most most youngsters dream of is being on stage with thousands of people screaming and singing along to the songs. And you made it pretty, pretty, uh, pretty well in the big time of of uh, musician fame. Oh, wow. But then you decided to give it all up and become a journalist. Say more about that. Wow. Uh, OK. Um... We have to, that's a timeline question. So, and so let's get that. Uh, I grew up in a musical family. My father, in 19, I was born in 1949. My dad, uh, Ellsworth Brown, uh, was a great jazz, uh, just a great musician all around and teacher. Um, I was just playing at home or just listening at home to mom. Mom got her degree in classical music from Los Angeles City College. She was born in Fort Dodge. But myself, I grew up listening to jazz and classical, like inundated. So I could already hear most things when I left the house and started to try to play music. But I wanted to be a journalist before that. 
because I watched Superman on television and I wanted to be Clark Kent. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. Seriously, because truth, justice, and the American way seemed pretty cool to me. Still does. <laughs> so at 14, I was not thinking about being a musician. I was just thinking, I was thinking about being a writer. And being at North High School by then, Mr. Parsons in journalism class, he's one, he gave me a chance to write. And music as a participation sport for me came at 16, 17, because then everybody was, <laughs> by then, you know, all of us in that age, I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. And so I sort of, I didn't want it. I hadn't planned on being a musician, but when journalism, at, at a point, I, both as a young man too, 14, 15, between 14 and 20, uh, I came to other realizations about life and um, I had to dig deeper into my own personal culture, my own personal history, my own, my own who am I? And I had to realize that music was deeply ingrained in my self and it's what allowed me to survive so uh, music uh, uh, journalism in high school journalism in college great but then uh, discovering music in the 70s um, and falling back on the culture that was really kind of inborn allowed me to rise very quickly in the music world I didn't read music that well, but I could hear really well. And so during, at that time, uh, in fact, you will hear from Bernie Fogel later, one of my, one of the people I'm interviewing, Bernie Fogel, class of 63, I believe. And Bernie's in that first wave, you guys, of Iowa rock stars. Playing before I was even thinking about it. When Bill Riley went to the, uh, uh, Bill Riley, Team Town. Anybody ever here go to Team Town at the fair? Okay. Yeah. I talked to the guy who's in the very first band to play at Team Town. So what happened to Bernie? Or do we have to wait to read about it? Yeah, you gotta wait. Sorry. He's here. <laughs> He's here. Well, he's not here in the Zoom, but... Oh, okay. Okay. The journalist never gives up all of his sources and plays ready. <laughs> well, you're, you had a, a complicated relationship with your father, according to what I read in your column. You didn't know him as a youngster. Tell, tell us about that. What was your experience of, of being raised by a single mom? Thanks for asking. Well, it wasn't quite a single mom. Dad was there until I had a full-time dad until, well, about 11, I guess, about middle school. Boom. That's how I remember heading into middle school and, whoa, wait a minute. Okay. Um, and because the adults don't tend to, you know, brief the kids on totally everything that's going on, it was kind of unclear why he was gone, but it was obvious from things that things weren't all that well between mom and dad. So um, 
mom at, again, I'm, a, I'm 11, 12, I got two younger brothers, and she got us busy. Instead of thinking, oh, God, it's terrible, what, what it, it was, we didn't have a chance to think about this. Bob Shrek down there, he will tell you, <laughs> because at that age, instead of sitting around going, whoa, 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 we were at Y camp and down at the YMCA with Marlo and Fran Cowan. So from age 11, 12, and yeah, about that age, until uh, I'll say until 1964, 65, downtown YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. And it meant something and it wasn't a political football. We so learned. What, what did you do? What was what was what was involved well, in that? What what we did was get along. What we did was learn about each other. What we did was sing together. What we did was be young men with creativity and responsibility together. Hmm. Now, we, you know, we haven't talked about, you know, the whole other story is how, how my whole family started it in Buxton, that whole tradition, we'll get to that. But just to say from what my grandmother's people developed, we took to that next level and Marlo and Fran Cowan and the YMCA and the chorus and all of that was completely pivotal in creating the Iowa that most of us actually are pretty familiar with from those days that is you know very few people just hated it was more people getting along understanding what i and i spawned from that period i think it's been cooperative weirdly but it spawned in that period so is part of what your mission is now is to kind of create that which you feel is lost in the public schools today or is that it, am Are i putting you Am I putting words in your mouth? The reason I came back to Des Moines after, geez, again, 30 years in the Bay Area. I read, always read the Des Moines Register, always kept up with Des Moines media, which again, coming from the Des Moines Register of 67, the Coles family-owned register. I must be some kind of masochist because... That was the pinnacle, and every day since Gannett took them over, I die a little bit. I died a little bit because those guys in that newsroom, Sumsky, all those guys that we grew up with, it's almost like it's almost like Buxton. When you hear talk about Buxton, Iowa, again, an integrated town, about five thousand people. Um, black and white. I'm from Sweden. You're from Africa. Here we are in a place called Iowa. Right? Well, they learned how to work together. They learned how to watch each other's children and work together for their own benefit. So, in a sense, I was, I won't, it's not, I don't know, it's weird. I feel like I was born beyond that fence. And then later you find out about all the divisions and stuff. But dad, see, in 49, Des Moines had a black union and a white union. 
So when the big shows came to town, some guys got them and some guys didn't. Uh -huh. And 1434 Walker, our house, east side, 1434 Walker Street. That was a house that my dad didn't know, my mom didn't know, but that house was behind the red line. Say more about that, D'Artagnan, for people who might not know what the red line is. Can't imagine anybody on this call doesn't, but this does go in podcast form. So explain what that means. Indeed, the red line was um, uh, a system for apportioning housing, in short, and assigning value to neighborhoods. That's basically what it is. And if your house was in this, the, you know, I can't remember the other colors, green lines, I can't remember all the other colors, but the red line meant, uh, well, you can purchase this house. We'll let you, you, Mr. Brown, Mrs. Thompson, you can purchase this house here, but no matter what you pay for this house, the value probably won't appreciate it. They didn't tell them that. Part. And, um, that is a continuing trip for me, which I, you know, that's kind of why I'm here too. I believe that's why I'm still here <laughs> in the true sense of the word, because I've seen, I've seen a couple of the attempts here in Des Moines to put voice to that, tell the truth a bit about that. But, um, there's some other chapters about that. And and again, my father had, he came here, he was from Philly, was in the Merchant Marine, radio officer, came back to Des Moines and got marginalized because of who he was and his, who he was. The frustration of that, um, no matter what color you are, as I say, we're all human. No matter the hue, man. Weren't you also, wasn't your family also impacted by the urban renewal, quote unquote, program? Yes. Um, that's part, that's all part of it. Because your house is behind the red line. Mm -hmm. It's expendable. So both career-wise, you know, dad was, was interesting. Um he had to go through a lot of rejection and being talented enough, but not being selected for things here. And then you got a family to feed, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of things that flow from all of that. But at the same time, Drake kids were coming across town from West 25th to East 14th to study music with dad and respect red. who lived down at 17 Walker, 17. Boy, those because, those names are so well known among um, our generation because they were the they were the go to uh, piano teachers, right? Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Do so, you do you have audio of interviews with them or in in your archives? Do you have anything that you'll be sharing from that era? Uh, yeah, I don't have. Um, 
was unfortunately I didn't get a chance to ever actually interview Spec Red, mm-hmm. but uh, I do. All of us will gather one day here, uh, and we will. I'll do a um, tell a story of Spec Red and his brother. Did most a lot of people here uh, knew about him, but did, you didn't probably did not know that Spec had a brother. No, I didn't. Very good, because I get to tell, you see back here on the wall, this this turbaned figure back on my wall. Same Is that his brother? Yes, because spec, because being a black man in America has always been, you know, somewhat of a challenge. Hey, again, for all of us. But when you are, you have to try to go to different places, your skin color definitely makes a big difference and how you're perceived also makes a huge difference. Well, Speck's brother, uh, John, was an incredible pianist, incredible organist, great musician. Um, He went to Los Angeles, and when he saw what was happening to the African-American musicians, his persona, he changed his name, became Juan Rolando. He instantly became (laughs) Hispanic, and got lots of work. And okay. then, and then he also reinvented himself as an East Indian, took on the name Corla Pandit. That's all I'll say. Those of you guys with Google, K O R L A P A N D I T. And we'll talk about that too later. Okay, how much later in this hour or no, in another no, no, program? No. Okay, come back to the- you keep teasing me, dark case. All right, so your your column title is the integrated life. My integrated life. My yeah, well, you're yeah, um, and I I got to be honest with you, it took me a while. It, it dawned on me that how many different interpretations there are of the word integrated, um, and. So I want to ask you what you were thinking when you came up with the title for your column. Very good. Well, the title for the column is the title of the writing, My Integrated Life. That's what I titled when I wrote it. And because it needs, I needed to actually, from my inception of of even me as an idea, my parents, from them, from my grandmother, it was all about, again, we're all humans, no matter the hue. You know? And to live that, to understand really what that actually means. I had no, <laughs> I kind of had no choice but to, because that's what I came up through here in Des Moines. We went to the Unity Church over there, 31st and Grand, the old county mansion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Completely integrated church. So when you pray, when you pray together and sing together and work together and fight for your union rights together in the case of my grandfolks down in Buxton. That creates a matrix that's much different than You're currently doing some projects working in the schools. Um, You you were working with Rochelle Chase and a puppet show uh, with Monica Leo. Um, what, What strikes you about today's young person versus when you were growing up? Can you articulate what 
differences there are, or maybe maybe you don't see any differences. Working with, I mean, as a kid myself growing up, I know the sensations of the, what it was like to come up here in Iowa, Central Iowa, Webster School, Amos Hyatt, North High, Drake, Friends, uh, Budding Paul, you know, all that. And I always come away with the image of excitement, of looking ahead, rushing toward a future. When I came back here in, in 2009, I've been coming back to Iowa since 2009, mainly in the summers between 2009 and 2014. One of the reasons I came back, let me finish the story I started a little bit earlier. I was in California, I'm reading in the newspaper, I'm hearing on the radio, you know, hearing in the media, what the heck's going on with Iowa? Educationally. I was like, what? And then also the, what was going on, you know, frankly, with the newspaper. Because after being in that newsroom from 67 through whatever, to see so many people getting away with so much because nobody was chasing them down. It was like really, it was just weird. And the thing with kids is I really have a, I didn't know how much of an educating soul. I, I don't like to see kids exploited, especially in the classroom. And so I said, well, Oh, and by the way, at the time I was reading all this, I'm in Northern California teaching George Lucas's daughter, Sean Penn's kids, Huey Lewis's daughter, um, Northern California, 90s, computers, new world, fast money and lots of it, and a well-appointed private school, 100-year-old private school. So nobody was skimping on anything. So when I'm looking back at my Iowa going, it was horrifying. So I went, well, mom's back in Iowa. She retired from the ministry in New York in 2001 and came back home. So I said, I'll go see mom. And I, then I went down to the high school, down to North High, to see what was going on. And there was kids down there actually hanging around who wanted to play music, and nobody was there to play with. In, near the band room. So Vincent Lewis, then... Uh, uh, principal at North High. That's what, 14 years ago now almost. And I've known Vincent since we were both in daycare together. Webster mm -hmm. School Daycare. And I said, hey, Vince, can you help me out here? We've got some kids who want a place. He said, here, here's the key to the boundary. Go for it. Great. And that was the beginning of it, 2009. But that was the... Julie, that was the main deal. There was many, many children here who wanted to do something and there was there seemed to be no outlets. And so I went over to the old Tech High too, uh, Central Campus now, and I did a blues workshop over there with uh, Kevin Burt and um, you know some other musicians who wanted to help out. And then uh, you guys say hello to Craig Nohollen there on the chat. I don't know, uh, you'll see Craig there. Hi, Craig. <laughs> really, God bless him because, let's see, 2009. So by 2010-11, Craig actually, because I wasn't telling anybody I was doing this. I just came in and did it. 
I had the key to the bandroom. I didn't talk to many adults about it. I just wanted to connect with kids because nobody else was. So then Craig finally kind of noticed <laughs> what's going on here. And, and the next out of words out of his mouth were, can we help out? Hmm. And so they actually raised some funds for me to continue and then actually bring my son out from California. My son, Jameo, is a, he's a fine educator, a great musician. So Craig, they, so I could bring him out. So now, Julie, I have I have video images. You know, I'm a reporter, right? So I'm documenting pretty much all this stuff since 2009. So in the months ahead, days ahead, you'll you'll see this, and what it meant to kids, what it meant to families. So why why haven't those opportunities been available? We all know how important it is to keep kids engaged and and occupied and, and doing creative things. Uh, what happened? Or maybe that's not something that you can address, but why isn't there more of an emphasis on this kind of thing? Why does it take a private citizen, D'Artagnan Brown, to come in and kind of make it happen? Well, it's up and down, okay? We, we, the society, everything, we go up, you know, we have high spots, we have low spots, we oscillate back and forth. And sometimes community support and awareness is high and sometimes community support and awareness is low. And then you have to look at what drives community awareness. And over the decades, I mean, we don't have a caucus now. Here's the time everybody should be getting really excited and we got like dead air now. What happened? Well, there you go. There's all of these indicators. And you know, the interesting thing when I started Playing music was just, wow, I'm playing music. But then when I started teaching it, then it actually became cultural, understanding, wait, what makes this stuff happen? And then in exploring that in a cultural sense, musical sense, and resource sense, and then you start to see, you know, you start to ask yourself questions like, hey, hey, where does the garbage go when the garbage man takes it away in the, in the morning? I learned, you know, most people don't even think about it. And so in that process, uh, interdisciplinary thinking, as a jazz musician, I go, oh, wait a minute, I, I'm, just a, I'm just a musician. But no, 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 you're a historian, you're a scientist, you're a sociologist, you have all these different things within you that you're doing simultaneously. And youth need that opportunity to understand that, because if they don't get the answer, opportunity to understand that, then it's like it's like one of your five senses is cut off. In fact, it's the sixth sense and, it, and you're not allowed to develop it. That's the problem here. That's what I see as being a real cheating of our youth. You know, um, the I don't know what possessed me to think about adding songwriting to the Okaboji Writers Retreat, but it just seemed to make perfect sense. Um, and the more I talk to other Iowa musicians and discover the talent around here um, that that could be, it just seems to me that there's as much potential in coming together, collaborating, 
in for for songwriters is as we're we're doing with the Iowa Writers Collaborative. They're, it's the same kind of principle as you get folks collaborating and sharing and referring to one another. That it it could easily um, use the Substack model too. You know, you could you could create the Iowa musicians or songwriters collaborative, and these kinds of things stories can be told between one another, but also to the to an interested public who would who would find it fascinating where folks are playing around the state, what kind of workshops are being songwriting workshops, that kind of thing. Um, and I think there's community support available potentially if if folks know about it. Do you, do you agree with that? Um, we're farmers here. We know that we have to have different, we have to have all the conditions to be right if you want to have something grow. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually can't answer a question like that because I only have part of, the, part of the equation. I know other musicians. In fact, I've talked to some even since you and I first began, began this about um, what is it that we're doing and who needs who else needs to kind of be exposed to it who else appreciates it and like that music's a tricky thing um now with that said the songwriting process mm -hmm. is a different thing altogether because within the songwriting process any of us have an opportunity to explore something of our inner self, some of our motivations, some of the things that get us up in the morning, and then find sound and rhythm to make it, to take it further. I love doing that. Um, I can't wait to watch you in action. Um, I'm hogging you, and I should open this up to your many fans on here who might have a question or a comment. Or, and, but before we go to folks on the call, how do people hear some of your some of your recorded music? Is it available? Um, not widely, not yet. It will be. In fact, again, let me go back to the very beginning. The the internet has not been friendly for musicians, not in that way. And um, so now that I can have my music in a place where I know that people will, will respect it and, and it's not open to Zuckerberg and the rest of them out there, then yeah, be uh, it's gonna be fun. All of my albums, I've got some, you know, my very first album, which is kind of a collector's item out there now. And most importantly, too, uh, studio things are good. Studio is great, but I've got a really nice archive of music, Iowa live music. Really? So, oh, yeah. Remember some of you remember Sam Salomon recently? Sure. Yeah, well, he did. He did some of his very best playing with us in the seven, you know, from that six, uh, 76 through eighty period and we recorded a lot of stuff we did a lot of good uh archival recording at that point. um 
some of you will remember groups like the Sons of Chaplin or um, other uh, Chick Corea, in fact, uh, who played came here and played with us on our stage, actually. So I've got a series of live performances and interviews with different artists that just like the um, uh, Luther Allison one that we did this week. By the way, I am curious, does, does, please don't hesitate to reach out to me if you want to, need to, uh, good, bad, indifferent. Um, I, the Substack thing still feels like a little bit, almost like boots that are a little too big for me, but um, I wanna be nimble. I want to be able to have dialogue if that's what people wish to have, take on suggestions. There's, a, there's still so many stories out there. Um, um, here, just one second here. Uh, I do want to find, yes. So just to continue to tease you a bit. Yeah, the Roots of Des Moines Rock. I'm going to do some things on that. The League of Extraordinary Islands. Uh, some of you know I was with a group called Chase in the 70s, a Grammy-nominated, internationally known jazz fusion band. I have, every night, I was with the band for 17 months. <laughs> and most of those nights, uh, when we gigged, what I would do is I would take my Sony TC-126 stereo cassette player and I'd run out to the front of the stage and I'd plant it right down there and turn it on, run back, pick up my bass, and we'd kick it off. Really? So I've got an archive that is second to none, I'll have to say, as far as live excitement. And so... It was it was available, you know, for a while, but it's been offline for a couple of years, and it'll be back available here. So. That's exciting. Hey, Chuck Offenberger, do you want to lead the uh, questioning? You, I usually call on you. Hey, Chuck. You're still muted. You're muted. Still muted, Chuck. All hey. right, how we go? Dart, it's great to see you again. Um, uh, I think we were together at the register in the 70s into the 80s, maybe. Is that right? That's right. I came back. Uh, I was there 67 through 70. And then after Chase, after the band was killed in the plane crash, that was August 9, 1974. By September 9, 74, I was back at Drake. And I think a week after that, I started down at the newsroom. Well, a couple, couple things. I, I really was thrilled when I saw your column start. I love the story about your family, your deep family history of coming to Buxton and then being in Des Moines. Um, and I, I mean, you really are sitting on a lot of very significant history um, for Iowa and the Midwest, because the things were really changing in Iowa at that time with opportunities in industry all over the state. And it was really something. But um, when you... Um, do you are Dart? Are you old enough to remember Buxton? Oh God, no! It, it, this town actually ended in nineteen twenties, twenty two, twenty five, in there, and the folks moved. Grandma and they moved to Fort Dodge after. That. Well, some moved to Des Moines and some moved to Fort Dodge. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the uh, and what? Tell me when when you were at the. I, I read your thing that I did. Leighton Hausch, the sports editor, hire you initially at the Register. Yes, he did. Uh, and what what did you do in your time as a journalist there? What what were you writing or doing? I was I started out okay. I walked on literally just said I'm going to try and get a job. So I walk up there and just by chance, this is all you know timings. 
So Leighton hired me to be the phone guy in sports, answer the sports phones. Weren't you in so high that, school at the time? Yeah, I was a senior at North. Yeah. Yeah. And what year did you graduate? 67. Hell, I was probably calling in sports scores from Shenandoah to you. That's me and uh, Steve Hellyer. Yes. <laughs> um, so did you branch out then from past sports? And were you? Uh, I seem to recall you on the news side uh, a little later. Yes, sir. That's uh, covered, you know, in my in my story. Uh, by the way, those of you who haven't yet, uh, I will put up the last kind of the last installment goes up today uh, of of this kind of iteration of, of what I've written about my life. But I was the sports phones and Julie and I were copy people at that time, running down up and down the back steps to the composing room with proof, the galley proofs. So I'm on the phones on April, what is that, April 1968, when Martin Luther King was killed. And uh, who was the city editor uh, at that point? Oh God, I can't remember. Um, rough guy. I'm, I'm at the sports phones and all of a sudden I sent somebody on my shoulder and it's the city editor and he's asking me, do I want to put a get a camera and head up to 25th or 13th in university. It was just that, that was it. And so I said, uh, yeah. So there I am, you know, with fire hoses and crazy, it was nuts, it was nuts. And so, you know, I was, and so I contributed to those stories. And then the wow. next week, the next week, Chuck, then they said, we're gonna put you on the uh, city desk. And then I was at the uh, state house. Me and Sumsky. Oh, so, wow. I recognize that. What year was that? 1968. Wow. Yeah. But I have to give I have to give credit to Al before any of that started though, Alan Ashby, who was the editor at the Iowa Bystander. He actually he's the one who gave me my very first shot to do anything inside of a newspaper office on the east side. Well, I mean, that Dart, that's an amazing story. I mean, you're one of the few people left around today that worked at the Bystander. You know, I mean, that's a, I'd love to have you write about that sometime. Let me, I don't want to monopolize this either, but I do, I'm I'm fascinated by your time with the band Chase. I mean, I did not know them well, but I knew of them. Sure. Um, a, a friend of mine, Jim Oates, came on board, and I, I can't remember if he was before you or after you at the same time, but he was a trumpet player with them, I think, and uh uh, that that band was must have really been something, and what a tragic ending for it. Yes, sir. I got Jim on the band. Oh, did you? Great. Yeah, Jim and I were friends from Drake, and because I we both been in jazz band with with Bob Weist and uh, all that. So I was the Tommy Gordon from Des Moines was the first Des Moinesite on on the Chase band, and then he wasn't even there hardly a month, uh, two months or so, and then next thing I know. Bill's calling me because because Tommy suggested I be the bass player. And I didn't know it at the time, but he also said I should be the lead singer. And I didn't even know that till I got to Chicago. It's kind of a shock. But then, uh, yeah, Jimmy Oates uh, was from Des Moines, also on Des Moines. And then we also had um, Joe Morrissey, another Drake-trained uh, trumpet player. So at one time, Drake was, or Drake, Chase was uh, of the eight, uh, four of us were from Iowa. Wow. wow. Yeah. And it, 
was was what was Chase's first name? Was it Rick Chase? Bill. Bill. Bill Chase. William. William. William Chase. Bill, Bill Chase. He died in the plane crash, didn't he? Yes, he did. Oh boy. Were you yeah, all that was... on that on that trip? Yeah. Um it's it's in the story. What I did, or our last gig, I'll just I guess uh, yeah, I was. I don't know how much you want me to go into that, but because it's in the story, but our last gig was in Houston, Texas. Um, and two week break, we're all going to meet in Jackson, Minnesota for the next gig at the Jackson County Fair. I lived in Chicago, Otsi and I, and yeah, a bunch of us lived in Chicago at the time, Schiller Park, not by the airport. But I'd been on the road like a couple months already, and I hadn't seen my mom in the better part of a year. So I said, guys, you go ahead. I'm going to go to Kansas City and see my mother. She was in the ministry, unity ministry down there. So I went to see mom and Otzi and Jay Sollenberger from Kansas and Joe Morrissey from Iowa. All four of us drove to the gig in Jackson, Minnesota. Bill Chase, Wally Yon, uh, and uh, Walter Clark, uh, the drummer, bass player, guitar player. They, Bill, they all flew from Chicago where they lived in a private plane to Jackson, Minnesota for the Jackson County Fair. That day, we barely made it driving because it was like summer storm, tornadic type storm. It was crazy. We barely made it driving. Bill was dedicated to making, he hated missing gigs. So they flew and they landed in Davenport and then he asked the tower, you know, and the tower said, dude, you shouldn't do this. But he said, no, got to make the gig, got to make the gig. So they persisted. We waited for them at the gig and all this, you know, and now it's seven o'clock PM and oh, well, I guess we'll all just go home. So we drove back to Otzi's parents' house in Jefferson, August 9. And we didn't find, we found out in the morning, about 4.30 in the morning that they found the plane, uh, you know, some hundreds of feet short of the runway. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah, it's, yeah. And it was that, it was it, it was over. Yeah. Well, you've had an amazing career, Dart, and I appreciate you telling those stories from now and in the future with the Writers Collaborative. God Chuck, bless you. Chuck, isn't his column just fascinating? I, mean, I Oh yeah. It, it, what, you know, it really, it makes me think about, as I was mentioned about what a pivot changing time that was in Iowa, uh, with the, especially with, in terms of building of the black population in Iowa. And I, I've heard Nicole Hannah Jones talking about when her family came to Waterloo, you know, yeah. and, was, uh, and the great migration was going, going on across industrial America completely changed the upper Midwest for sure. You know, it was, it was really an amazing time. I'm not sure that story's been told well enough yet, actually. Well, there's always nuances. See, that's the whole thing. I'm hoping um, to add a couple of, I don't know about chapters, but at least some subheads to Black history here. Because um, what the folks did, and it, it kind of means more every day, to kind of go back really for a quick second about growing up without my dad from age basically 11 until 19 in that space. Yeah, it was, I felt really bad about it. It was, you know, 
which is why I think I really, I relate to students too now a lot because I understand if there's somebody not there. But I had to, instead of, <laughs> I had later I realized, whoa, 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 what dart, back up here a second. I realized that I was given everything that my father should have given by the time I was nine, 10. And the significance of what he taught me, not just in the world of music and all that, but a lot of the unconscious things about perseverance and understanding, you know, sometimes enough is enough. But his musical gifts that he gave me, I'm still, I'm still processing. Because again, dude, until Bob Weiss at break, <laughs> until I studied with Bob in 1972, I started playing in 60, whatever. It wasn't until 72 that I actually could read. Because dad didn't sit down and show me, hey, this is how you read, son. I didn't get that. It was all hearing. But Bob showed me how to split the measure in half. You go here, one and two and. Oh, three and four and. Oh, hey, that works. That's kind of cool. And because of that, if it hadn't been for that, I couldn't have cut the chase gig. Because the charts were four, five, six, seven, eight pages long. He's one of the best arrangers ever. And I, I couldn't hardly even read. But that but that nexus between being able to actually groove and play and the sensibility and musical sensibility versus the reading workaday thing, right? That's to integrate those is 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 interesting. It's fascination, and we'll probably talk about that a lot, I think. In, workshops or whatever because it's not they're not fine lines it's a gradation thing all of us feel these things differently but all of us do have these sensibilities in there so it's you know where, where are we going to go with it it's exciting it is exciting laura bellin has a question laura go right ahead you'll need to unmute yes yeah, more like a comment i just wanted to echo chuck i please write about your experiences with a bystander that's so i'm so interested in that. And I've really hardly ever talked to anybody who worked there. So I think that would be interesting and certainly a perspective we need. Well, I was 15 or 16. So there you go. Well, you know, it's not <laughs> voluminous, but definitely Alan Ashby was an important, really amazing guy. Amazing mm -hmm. guy. What, what made you get out of journalism, D'Artagnan? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's in there. Too. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We've oh, it's twelve fifty-five. Yeah, you you you've got a couple minutes to answer. Go ahead. Well, um, it, please, uh, all of you who haven't yet, uh, and if you need, email me. I'll make you give you get you in so you can read uh, my integrated life because um, it's all in there. But in short, as a kid, uh, parent, you know, parent, uh, a kid of teetotalers, my mother anyway. And straight, you will be straight. You will be straight. Yeah. When I started playing music, uh, you know, marijuana was everywhere. And I ended up getting arrested in 1970, um, May, uh, for having a, a, a joint about the size of my little thumb, my, about the size of my thumbnail, literally. But it was enough that it sullied my reputation. And of course, back in that day, there was no quotes around that. And from a kid who wanted to, you know, truth, justice in the American way, I wanted to be a writer since I was 14. And so when that happened, 
in my mind, I had forfeited my opportunity. I was sullied and I didn't want to sully the industry. And I wouldn't be, you know, I was just, I couldn't bring myself to do that. It was going to be too, I didn't deserve it after that happened. So now that's where my concept of falling up in life takes hold. Because yeah, that life was over. So I thought. So then I had my fallback. What's your fallback, D'Artagnan? Well, let's see, that was May 70 when I decided not to go back to school. By June 71, July 71 or 70, I'm playing in Greenwood Park for about a thousand kids. Because we was that's when I started playing music. So instead of so I died, literally died to the downtown crew and was reborn to the club concert culture crew. It's the weirdest thing. I had falling up. That's the only way I can describe it. it you you're, know, you're, you're Ralph Ellison in reverse. Really? I, <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> what, what strikes me about this story is that you, this was a typical example of profiling. Uh, there, oh, yeah, classic. You know, there were a whole lot of kids our age whose skin color wasn't black that were doing a lot more drugs than than you were that night, but you were pulled over because of the color of your skin, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I mean, oh, now you know, in in defense of, I had a, I was driving a car that didn't have a, a license plate. It had that paper thing because you know it's registered, but it didn't have the plate yet. So that gave him the excuse. That's what I think. But mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm I'm in Iowa CCI, right? You guys might know a little bit about Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. I've been in that. Uh, when I came back to Des Moines, that was another thing that I it was people actually getting something done, and I believe in them, and I'm I'm in the, the group. I'm one of the members. And fortunately, you did not have to serve time. Somebody we all remembered and loved, Dan Johnston, represented you. Is that right? Uh, yeah, in fact. Yeah, Dan, great. Great man. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you are writing again, and I'm glad you are with us, and I can't wait to read your next column, and I am so glad that we have reconnected after all these years. Thank you so well, much. Well, uh, since, uh, again, for Chuck and for Laura, especially Laura, my goodness gracious, my, I am so <laughs> glad to see you, meet you, and profess deep respect for who I think is, wow, one of the best, one of the best, one of the best. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Now, D'Artagnan, what we do after uh, the one hour is we break into small groups uh, because we we feel like Zoom is great, but you miss the sort of camaraderie of informal conversations. If you can hang around for a little bit, for a few minutes, and and participate in a break room. We're going to do that for about five, six minutes, and then come back and say toodaloo. That work for you? If you wish. Sure. I'm Here we go.